If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started. Good morning, everybody. What a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. I know it's been commented on already, but how beautiful. And I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Um, before I do that, I want to let you know that uh, Tom and Joe England are kind of bumming out right now because Megan's not down in their basement anymore. And so please pray for Tom and Jill. I think they're feeling it. Their daughter, Megan, just got married yesterday in a beautiful ceremony. My wife, Shannon, and I were so blessed yesterday, church, just seeing, seeing you all in action, serving and loving. And kind of like Lewis and Jason said, I want to express my love for you as well, just for all the service and sacrifice and devotion to Christ and to one another that you show. You are an amazing church, and uh, I love just being a part of this local church. It's really special and sweet. Um, yeah, amen. And uh, I also want to thank you all for uh, praying this week. We had Eric Strum, who had uh, surgery. Eric's slowly recovering. He's hoping to be able to get back to work soon. So just pray for Eric's healing and pray for Cheryl and the kids as Eric's healing. Um, and thank you for praying for him this week. Also, thank you for praying for my dad. Um, Lord willing, we're hoping to be able to get him back home tomorrow or Tuesday. Uh, pray for him as he's slowly recovering. He's been in uh, quite a bit of pain. And um, pray for my mom as well. It's been a really um, an emotionally taxing week. And um, God's been very kind and, and has been sustaining us. We're grateful for it. Um, and my dad and my mom really appreciate all the love and the prayers and support church that you've been giving, as, as, as well as my family and Joel and Danielle. We're so grateful for you guys. And, uh, again, just love being a part of this local church and all the love that comes forth. Uh, one of the things I'm so grateful for as well in our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches is the way that our own local church cares for itself, but also we are a part of a family of churches that cares for us as well. Um, uh, Bill Patton has known my dad for years, and I think of just the, the guys um, just that we have fellowship and partnership with in Sovereign Grace and have for many years there's love and relationship that's been built, and we've been tethered together in the spirit and a common mission for the gospel, but also in our love for one another. And uh, just midweek, uh, Shannon and John Reyes actually was looking out for me. I was supposed to preach this week and recognizing just all the care for my mom and my dad this week and just the midst of what they're facing. Um, I was able to really focus on my family uh, because uh, you all were looking out for me and John and Shannon looking out for me, and I contacted uh, Bill Patton, who's coming off of his vacation, and he was like, CB, I'll be there Sunday. I'm happy to be able to be there, and it really enabled my mind to be able to focus on uh, my mom and my sisters and uh, my dad, and I just want to thank you all for that. And Bill, I want to thank you just for your love and your faithfulness and devotion to Christ uh, through all these years and for your partnership in the gospel. I'm so thankful to have you here. Um, just for our church to hear your message on Isaiah 61, on the anointed one, the Christ. I can't wait for our folks to hear and be affected by your passion for Jesus, which I know has touched my own life so deeply. And so can we welcome Bill Patton from Covenant Fellowship as he comes to preach God's word to us? Thanks, Bill. Thank you, brother, so much. Well, Good morning. If you would go in your Bibles to Isaiah 61, Isaiah chapter 61, 
We have a fair amount of ground to cover, uh, so I won't say everything I was intending to say when I walked up here, but I will say that I enjoyed worshiping with you. I enjoyed uh, Tom's worship leading. I enjoyed Ethan's comments. And my own soul is edified and strengthened. Uh, able to focus on Christ in a way that I wasn't able to driving here, just being distracted by various cares and concerns, which I know we all carry. So thank you for the way you've already served me this morning. Isaiah 61, we're going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to focus largely on the opening verses, but we will treat the entire chapter. That Covenant Fellowship, which is which is in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, uh, right around the intersection of Route 1 and Route 202, uh, not far from Westchester, not far from Concordville, not far from the Delaware line, in case you don't know where we are. Uh, we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and we just finished a year and a half or so uh, going chapter by chapter through that book. And I drew the assignment on the 61st chapter of Isaiah, and, and uh, that's the sermon I've brought to you today. Isaiah 61, let's read it together, okay? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. In the year 1865, Abraham Lincoln delivered his second inaugural address as the President of the United States. He anticipated the end of the Civil War, and he sought to set the stage for peace. So he very beautifully said, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Famous, beautiful words as the Civil War wound down. In the year 1933, Franklin Roosevelt delivered his first inaugural address as President of the United States. He wanted to take active measures to end the Great Depression. And in the address, he set the stage for new legislation which would give work to the nearly 30% of the workforce that was unemployed. So he said in his inaugural address with great confidence, this great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is what? Fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Inspiring words from Franklin Roosevelt. In the year 1961, John Kennedy delivered his first inaugural address as president. And aware that he was the youngest president ever elected, he sought to challenge a new generation to sacrificial public service for the nation and for freedom. So he said, My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what, what you can do for your country. Again, inspiring words from a leader setting the agenda for his administration as it began. In the year A.D. 28, Jesus Christ delivered his inaugural address. Not as a mere president of the United States, but as the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords, to whom every president that this nation has ever known, 
will bend the knee and tremble. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords gave His inaugural address. The one who is the Messiah over all, blessed forever. Amen. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 9. Like Lincoln, like Roosevelt, like Kennedy, Jesus set the stage for His upcoming initiatives. And His words in His inaugural address were the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 61, which we just read. Now, upon first reading the beginning of Isaiah 61, it's not unreasonable for you or for me to think that Isaiah is speaking there of himself. This is the book of Isaiah. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So you think, is Isaiah talking about Himself. And it's not unreasonable to think that. That he's talking, speaking of himself or perhaps himself along with the other Old Testament prophets. Certainly Isaiah and the other prophets were anointed by the Spirit. Certainly they were sent by God. Certainly they, they brought a message of good news. I've come to bring good news. They helped bind up the brokenhearted remnant that was in exile. Or that was going to be in exile. But and they would read Isaiah's words and their broken hearts would be, would be filled with some hope. They announced the coming liberty to the captives. That though they were going into captivity, they would one day return. That a remnant would survive. They proclaimed a coming year of the Lord's favor. When God would grant them liberty and they would return. So it's not wrong to see in Isaiah and the other prophets a partial fulfillment of these verses. Or to imagine how this chapter would have encouraged the remnant in Babylon and the exiles as they returned. The whole book of Isaiah would strengthen and encourage them. But clearly this is not the fundamental focus of the passage. Isaiah already introduced us to this anointed one with words that indicate that he's not speaking fundamentally of himself, but of somebody else. So. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, he said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He will be anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the, the one that's anointed by the Spirit in Isaiah 61 is not Isaiah himself, surely not in Isaiah 11.1, 1, but rather one from the royal line of Jesse's son, David. So the one on whom the Spirit rests, the anointed one, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, is a king. This anointed one who speaks these words is a king of the royal line of David. Well, Isaiah spoke of this one again in chapter 42, verse 1. In that whole section about the servant who's going to come. The servant who will be pierced for the transgressions of his people. And he says, behold my servant whom I uphold. 
my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So the anointed one in Isaiah 42 is the chosen servant, the suffering servant described in chapters 40 through 55. And particularly with clarity regarding Jesus himself in Isaiah 53. Thus the coming king and the coming servant and the coming anointed one, of which Isaiah 61 speaks, they are one and the same person. Now on this side of history, we know that that was Jesus Christ. They didn't know that back then. But we know that now. The Lord anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Do you remember the story? He was baptized by John. The Spirit came upon him, rested upon him, and remained. The Lord anointed him with the Spirit at his baptism. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That resonates with Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he was taken by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil And that without sin. He succeeded where Adam failed. Then Jesus comes out of the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit and begins to preach in the Galilee region. Well, when he gets to his hometown, he gives his inaugural address. Like politicians today will frequently give an important speech in their hometown. And we read about that in Luke 4. I think we have it on the screen. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Notice it was Jesus' custom to go to church. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That doesn't mean he was done preaching. Evidently, the custom back in those days was to stand up for the reading of Scripture and then to sit down for its exposition, which the older I get, the more that custom appeals to me. <laughs> so they, he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words 
that were coming from his mouth. That's not all he said. He said many gracious words. And just as people were touched and moved and affected by the speeches of Lincoln and Roosevelt and Kennedy, people were touched, very touched and deeply moved by what Jesus had to say. Now, this was no ordinary exposition of the biblical text. Because astonishingly, he claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in this chapter. He claimed in no uncertain terms to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. What we have in Luke is not the whole speech. People were amazed and blessed at all that he said. But let's look at the specific elements of his speech and learn what the initiatives of his reign were. So we're not just exegeting Luke, we're exegeting Isaiah 61 because they're the same words. Let's learn what his initiatives were going to be, his objectives for his reign, the inauguration of his rule, having been voted in by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The first one was to proclaim or to announce or to preach good news. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my administration? To proclaim good news. Good news. It's the good news that the everlasting kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy had finally arrived in himself. Because he was the promised king. The king has arrived, therefore the kingdom has begun. It's the good news that the servant, the suffering servant, had arrived who would make his soul an offering for sin and that through his offering, transgressors might be counted righteous. It's the good news that despite our ongoing rebellion, despite our careless and grievous sins, That despite our determination to move away from God and towards Satan and his kingdom, God loves us. And we'll through him make a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And to receive back, to give them back forever and forever what they lost In their fall. In their descent. Into sin. That is really good news. So he was. There. He began his administration in order to announce. That good news. Now notice that the news is for the poor. Let us not overlook. That important consideration. What Jesus proclaims, the good news that he announces, is not received as good news to the rich. It's not perceived as good news to the self-sufficient and the self-exalting and the self-righteous. They don't hear Jesus' words and say, great, great news. What a relief. It's not good news to the ears of those whose hands are full of riches and whose hearts are full of themselves. They don't receive this word as 
good news. We've seen this in Isaiah before. At least we did it at our church where we were studying the book of Isaiah. For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up. These are the words of the Father. Thus says the Holy One who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To lift the contrite. Jesus, absolutely consistent with his father, says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples said, how can this be? Is there, what's the hope for the rich person? And Jesus thankfully said, he thankfully said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The gospel of Christ is good news to the afflicted, to the destitute, to the lowly, to the poor. Anyone in this room qualify? I think all of us do. The gospel is wonderful help indeed to those who know they need help. To them, it's good news. So Jesus delivers critical sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He takes his place before the multitudes and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus to preach good news to those in poverty and emptiness, those in soiled clothes and uncleanness. Those in weakness and in helplessness. Promising to make them rich and full. Promising to clothe them in clean, spotless robes of righteousness. Promising to make them strong like trees of righteousness. And fruitful for the glory of his name. So his first initiative was to proclaim good news to the poor. His second initiative was to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit and sent by God to heal broken hearts. To bind up wounded hearts. This speaks fundamentally to those with wounded consciences. And I don't want us to miss this, this distinction. This is fundamentally about those who are, who are distressed and disheartened by their own sinfulness, whose hearts are broken at who they are. I've done it again. How can I sin against God in this way? 
And they're in distress and their hearts are broken over their own sinfulness. And the sorrow that their sinfulness brings to their own hearts and the hearts of others. Mental health professionals know the devastating effects of guilt. They understand that guilt lowers the estimation of the self. Mental health professionals understand that that guilt lowers a person's estimation of their own worth. But they have no remedy. Just saying to somebody who's whose soul is racked with guilt, look, you've done nothing wrong. Everybody does that. It doesn't work. Saying to somebody, you're great. You're the best. You're worthy. It doesn't work. Because your conscience knows better. Your conscience knows better. And it testifies against you. Saying those things to yourself doesn't work. Hey, Bill, you're great. You're really great. You're great. You're terrific. And then your own conscience is saying, no, you're not. You know what you did. You know how you spurned the counsel you received. You knew how, you know how you plowed ahead anyway. Meds. For all the good that they do, and meds do do good, let's not despise medications. They can't silence a wounded, guilt-ridden conscience. They can only turn down the volume. Alcohol or drugs or entertainment can't heal a wounded conscience. Because in moments of sobriety or solitude, your conscience bears witness again and testifies against you. Well-meaning people may seek to comfort your conscience, a conscience wounded by a deep sense of sin, but they can't heal it. How do you heal a conscience that is haunted by a sense of guilt? Christ says that he came to treat and to bind up and to heal the broken, wounded conscience. Now, I know even as I'm saying these words that there are those in this room who carry with them terrible secrets and unbearable burdens. And I just want to say this to you. Do do you long to know what it's like to have a heart that is healed of all guilt and all shame? Well, this is the power of the gospel. This is the appeal of the gospel. You can know what it's like to have no guilt and no shame. Would you like to taste that? Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. You can have a clear conscience before God. Now and forever and ever. And no matter what the cause of your broken heart today, I don't want you to think that God looks the other way. Let's broaden it out. Let's not just talk about the wounded conscience, but let's just talk about the devastated heart, the devastated soul. I don't want you to think for a moment that God is ambivalent or complacent or that he doesn't care. Maybe your tears flow like flow like they do in Billie Eilish's when the party's over. Maybe your despair is like hers. I don't know if you've seen that video, black ink coming out of her eyes. 
flooding out of her eyes, expressing the sorrow of a generation of young people. Millions of views. Maybe your dreams, like a, like a fragile vase, lay shattered in pieces on the floor. This is not my dream. This is the opposite of my dream. Or maybe you've been robbed by the sins and the injustices of other people. Maybe you're like the traveler on that road who was stripped and beaten and left half dead along the roadside of life. And the priest and the Levite walk around you. They don't want to deal with you. You're, you're not going to make it. You, you've been robbed and beaten by life. Well, God anointed a man to help you. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man who suffered unspeakable injustices at the hands of others. He will stop to help you. He will stop to help you. He'll bind up your bleeding wounds. He'll carry you safely to the end. And pay the full price. And that's just the beginning. Maybe you noticed going through our text that, that this Messiah when he comes is going to, is going to give his people all this instead of all that. Did you notice that the insteads? Beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. This instead of that. Instead of suffering, he will grant blessing. Instead of affliction, he will grant glory. Instead of ashes, he will give beauty. Instead of weeping, he will give the oil of gladness. Instead of a faint spirit, a weak spirit, he'll give a garment of praise. Instead of multiplied losses, he will give a multiplied double portion. Verse 7, if you still have your Bibles open. Instead of poverty, he's going to give you joy in your lot. Well, look what has come to me. This is glorious. This is wonderful. This is better than I ever expected. He won't only stop to help you, but he'll give you all things. All things are ours in Christ. Now, those of us in this room who love and follow Christ, and some of you have yet to decide whether or not you're going to do that. Some of you are on the fence. Some of you young people. We who love and follow Christ have tasted these blessings, and we testify that we're immeasurably richer already. We've only gotten a taste so far. But we're immeasurably richer already. Even though we still suffer afflictions of every kind, even though tears of sorrow still flow from our eyes, we know that the very afflictions we suffer now in hope, in faith, are working for us. Even our sufferings are working for us an eternal weight of glory. We were driving back from the Outer Banks. We were up in Corolla. We passed 
through Duck. We were passing by the southern shores, and I noticed on the southern shores on the left, beautiful, magnificent home, probably $2 million, huge home, and it just was called Glory. And I drove by that, and I said, that's not Glory. <laughs> that's like That's like nothing compared to Glory. I mean, I understood why they named it that way, because it is... It is cool, but look, a day is coming for us when every teardrop of sorrow that we have ever shed will be swallowed up in an ocean of joy, in an ocean of joy. You won't remember that teardrop. It'll be swallowed up, every one of them. Well, let's move on or we won't get through the chapter. His next initiative was to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison doors. Jesus declares that he will liberate the captive slaves and the prisoners. What hope this must have given those who were in exile in Babylon? They were owned by the Babylons. They were their property. They couldn't go where they wanted to do or do what they wanted to do. They were enslaved. By oppressors. They were prisoners and away from home. These words have always given great hope to those who are in physical bonds of slavery. I will proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison doors. Whether their chains or their oppressors were Babylonians or Romans or plantation owners in the American South. Christ hates injustice, and he promises to break the power of every oppressor. What hope this is given to those literally in chains throughout the ages, which is why so many African Americans fell in love with the gospel. Because Jesus promised liberty, freedom. More fundamentally, though, these words... Give hope to all men and women who are held captive by even worse oppressors than those who have been held in bonds of physical slavery. Jesus promises to liberate us from the oppression of sin, the oppression of Satan, and the oppression of death. The cruelest taskmasters who say to every human being on the face of the earth, I own you. You're going to die. I own you. You're going to serve me. Ever since the fall of man, we've been subject to lifelong slavery. We've been held captive by sinful desires. That's not to say that we can never say no to a sinful desire, but it does mean that we are unable, unable to consistently will the good. We're unable to consistently will the good. We've been held captive by Satan to do his will. Unable to free ourselves from his enslavement. We've been held captive by death and the fear of death. Unable to escape its haunting and frightening and cruel inevitability. You're going to die. But Christ liberates us from the slavery of sinful desires. Giving us a new heart with new desires and the power of the Spirit to fight them. He liberates us from slavery to Satan, having defeated him at the cross, so that when we resist him in the name of Jesus, 
he must flee. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And he liberates us from the fear of death. Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will what? Never die. CB knows it. He went to Sunday school just like me. We used to sing it. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never, never die. In laying aside these mortal bodies, brothers and sisters, we will go from life to life and never die. Maybe you're a Christian this morning. You'd say, well, I certainly am not feeling very liberated. I'm not feeling very free. I'm not feeling very free from sin. I'm not feeling very free from Satan. I'm struggling. I feel bound. I feel locked up. I would just ask you this. Are you forgetting the promises? Are you forgetting that it's the truth that sets you free? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You remember Christian and Hopeful and Pilgrim's Progress? They foolishly wandered off the straight and narrow road. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you've wandered off this week or this month or the last few years. They ended up being captured by a mighty and evil giant. And that giant put them in his stinking dungeon of despair. Maybe you're in a stinking dungeon right now. It's cold, you're full of despair, and the whole situation stinks. Do you remember how they got out? Do you remember how they got out? I like reading sometimes in the old 1600s English. I'll read it for you, we'll put it up there, I'll translate where the 1600s doesn't quite map onto the 20th century. Well, this is Bunyan in his original words, well... On Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray. This is Christian and hopeful. They continued in prayer till almost the break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in a passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. In my heart. In my pocket, I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Take it out of your pocket and put it in the lock. Let's get out of here. Love it. And thus the key of God's promises set them free. Whatever dungeon you're in this morning, find the keys. Find the promises that you've been given that relate. Read your Bible. The Holy Spirit will highlight something that you've read. There's your key. 
type it into your computer, print it out, put it up on your filing cabinet. Make it the screensaver on your computer. Keep, keep that. Well, we don't use screensavers so much anymore, do we? Get in the word. Find a word for your situation. Memorize it and let that truth from Jesus set you free. Part of the reason Satan tries to keep us from church, keep us from small group. Why? Because you're not going to be getting those words. You're not going to be reinforced in the word. It can keep you bound up. All right. The next initiative Jesus announces is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This speaks of a time of favor like the Jubilee year in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. In that year, all debts were canceled. It was the 50th year when all the people were given back their land, which may have been lost due to their indebtedness. This proclamation, this, this announcement by, by uh, Isaiah that God is going to announce a jubilee, a jubilee would have given great hope to the exiles of a return to their land, which they had lost by their debt of sin. They were in Babylon. God's going to give them a, like a jubilee. They're going to come back. It's going to be a year of the Lord's favor. But this speaks more profoundly and more directly to nothing less than the return to us, the return to humanity of everything we lost in the fall. Hallelujah. Jesus came to proclaim the year of God's favor. That is a season of time when all the debts will be canceled. I'm getting happy up here. All the debts are going to be canceled. Jesus announced a year of the Lord's favor. That's not like a literal year, 365 days. That's a long season where God is granting clemency to those who have rebelled against him. Jesus came to announce the year of the Lord's favor. That's a year of his grace, a long season, a happy and glorious season of redemption that we are now in. Brothers and sisters, that season will not last forever. The year of Jubilee came and went. And this day of the Lord's favor, this year of the Lord's favor will come and go. The next line speaks of the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus preached from this text, as he's giving his inaugural address, he stopped before he got to that verse. He ended his reading with the year of God's favor. And he didn't read about the day of vengeance. Because that's not what his mission was about. His first coming marked the start of a long season of God's grace and favor, symbolized as a year. His second coming will mark a very short and grave time of his vengeance, symbolized as a day. Well, let that sober you if you need to be sobered. In verses 3 through 6, we're going to move through to the end now. The anointed one continues to say what he will accomplish. And we should pray that God would accomplish these things in us. He's going to come. He's going to, he's going to do all these glorious things for the remnant of his people, which is us. 
Then he says he will plan his people and make them strong like oaks of righteousness. Oh, Lord, make Christ Community Church strong. Make the men and women in this church, the boys and girls in this church, strong like oaks of righteousness. Lord, empower them to rebuild what was ruined, just like the exiles came back and began to rebuild the city. May you rebuild what has been lost, what's been lost in, in your parents' generation or your grandparents' generation. Rebuild it for your children and for your grandchildren. He will empower them to build up what was ruined. He'll enable them to restore the devastation of previous generations. He'll make them priests of the Lord to the nations. Oh God, make Christ Community Church. Lord, uh, Lord, like priests to the nations. Like what's already happening in Croatia, right? Yeah. He will draw strangers and foreigners to them. Those who will joyfully join in the work and bring in the wealth of the nations. I keep thinking about this little remnant in Babylon. They finally receive the call to come back. They try and rebuild the temple. They rebuild it, but it's nothing compared to what it once was. They hang in there as... As the Persians run through, as the Greeks run through, as the Romans run through and they're enslaved and they're reading Isaiah and saying, where's the fulfillment of the promises? The Messiah comes. And all these things begin to come to pass. So that now it's not just a group of Jewish people. Look at all the foreigners that the Lord has added to the work of glorifying his name. All of us. All of us. Well, in verses 8 through 9, the Lord says he loves justice. He hates robbery and wrong. All the wrongdoers will receive recompense for oppressing God's people. And all those who are in the remnant, who are faithful, will receive their recompense, a glorious inheritance. He'll make an everlasting covenant with them. Verses 8 through 9, he will make their offspring forever known, forever known as those blessed of the Lord. People will look at us in ages to come. See, there's the blessed of the Lord. Now, what a relief this was to Isaiah. You have to understand that Isaiah and the faithful remnant that were reading him and hearing him preach, that that they lived through a time of, of complete and utter disaster. It was a time of spiritual downgrade where they hit rock bottom. Everything seemed lost. We're no longer following Christ. We're worshiping idols. We're being cast away from the land. We're being taken into exile in Babylon. What hope is there that the reason for God having chosen us will ever come to pass? That is that righteousness and glory might spring up before all the nations. Well, well, you look at, you look at what we've just read and it brings great relief to them. All is not lost after all. It's almost as if to encourage Isaiah and the faithful remnant of that day, God let them listen in on the Messiah's inaugural address ahead of time. Someone's coming and this is what he, this is his inaugural speech and this is what he will accomplish. And when, when Isaiah receives these words from the Spirit, he is Caught up into worship. And that's how this chapter ends. 
The Isaiah 61 verses 10 through 11, we hear Isaiah speaking with, out of great relief and joy. These verses are pure doxology, they're praise. The words of the anointed so lifted his faith, so lifted his heart that we see Isaiah, the man who was, who would of course have tended to be discouraged at all the developments that were so negative. We see that man, our brother who we can identify with, filled with joy and worshiping. And what's he worshiping God for? First for his own salvation. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Because he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness like a bride and a bridegroom on their wedding day. Somehow in the spirit These words of the coming Messiah so lifted Isaiah. He's so caught up in the Holy Spirit. It's almost like he's transported to that great wedding feast at the end of the age with a bride and a bridegroom. He sees that great future wedding to which all weddings point. That great future marriage supper to which all wedding receptions point. When Christ is forever united with his bride, the church. Isaiah rejoices that he's going to be there. And we can rejoice this morning that we'll be there. He rejoices that God's people, Israel, that little beaten down, bedraggled remnant, will not fail. For as surely as the earth produces plants when a garden is sown, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up where? Before all nations before all peoples. How is that going to happen? Through the anointed one. Through the Messiah. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your attentiveness. If you and the worship team could come forward at this time, we're just going to close in worship and give praise to our almighty king and suffering servant who laid down his life for us and worship him and give him thanks for he has clothed us believers in Christ with the garments of salvation. He has covered us with the robe of righteousness. What wonderful words describing our salvation for all of us who have faith in Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let us all stand, church, and sing. Hallelujah. Let us praise Him. Let us lift up our voices and praise Him. Let us clap for how wonderful our awesome King of Kings and Lord of Lords, suffering servant, and how He has set us free. Brothers and sisters in Christ, We are free indeed because Christ has broken the oppression of sin and Satan and death. Oh, let's let him have it again. Isn't he awesome? Isn't he wonderful? You're awesome, Jesus. You're wonderful, Jesus. We love you. We love you. Oh, Christ community, how blessed we are to have Christ in us. 
And uh, I'm so grateful to worship him together with you. We pray that you have a wonderful week. And um, Laura Cahan came forward and just was moved by the Spirit of God. She wanted to gather a number of ladies around Jill England to pray for her. Jill has upcoming surgery. And so if a number of ladies could head over toward Jill. Jill, could you just lift your hand up so people know where you're at? And if you could head over and pray for Jill. Uh, This is the official end of the service. Have a wonderful week, church. We love you. Thank God for you. God bless you.